Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary Shirley and today's episode is brought to you by Zoom. No, the company does not sponsor us, but it is the tool we use to record our podcast. We are therefore very pleased to feature Lynn Harland on today's episode as the Chief Compliance and Ethics Officer and Chief Privacy Officer of Zoom. Lynn, welcome. Please tell us about yourself and your background. Thank you so much, Mary, and thank you again for the invitation to join you today. Um, Indeed, I am the uh, Chief Compliance and Ethics Officer and the Chief Privacy Officer of Zoom, as well as one of our deputy GCs. I'm um, delighted to be at Zoom. I began at the company in June, uh, excuse me, in January, January of 2020. Um, And so approximately six weeks, of course, before the pandemic really started to hit uh, in the United States. Of course, it was happening elsewhere um, prior to that, but Mm. about six weeks before it really hit us in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, Prior to that, I had been, as as you know, I had been the chief compliance and ethics officer a deputy GC and chief uh, counsel for cybersecurity at PepsiCo. And prior to that, I had been a federal prosecutor in Washington, D.C. and the Eastern District of Virginia for many, many years um, before that. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And uh, you were recently named chief privacy officer at Zoom in addition to your roles of chief uh, Compliance and Ethics Officer and Deputy General Counsel. Can you elaborate a little more about um, your different roles at Zoom? Sure, sure. I am. I believe I don't. I don't remember the exact date, but I actually think that I was named Chief Privacy Officer at some point in the spring during the um, what we were calling at the time, or and are calling our 90-day focus on privacy and security. And I'm, I'm just honored to be uh, helping out in, in both of those roles. The differences, as you may know, um, you know, many companies can set things up in, in lots of different ways, but um, I do run what we call the compliance function. And so as part of my compliance and ethics officer duties, we have a compliance and ethics team, which of course handles the you know, bread and butter Um, elements of an effective compliance program per the DOJ and SEC guidance. So, you know, for example, um, having code of conduct and appropriate training and tone at the top, making sure that you have resources for, you know, doing business the right way to support the business in uh, ensuring compliance across a number of different areas. And of course, uh, mitigating the risk of any types of um, potential issues and concerns that can arise. And then as chief privacy officer, I'm really proud of our privacy team as well. I am a leader of that team and um, help, we help you know, resolve issues around privacy and help support and drive the privacy agenda across the company as well. So we will provide um, particular specific legal advice around privacy laws when they come up. We also help um, drive again and support uh, Zoom's privacy posture and um, principles of doing business in ways that protect the privacy and security of our users. Wonderful. And um, 
you know, you, you've mentioned a little bit about um, joining um, during this uh, difficult phase of the year 2020. I think global pandemics are really interesting times from a compliance perspective. Um, carefully covered up frauds can suddenly be revealed. Supply chain processes are adjusted for emergency situations where perhaps more substandard goods can be sold than otherwise would have. And for Zoom, the sudden increased usage of the platform helped to identify some new security challenges. I viewed the reaction of Zoom in this situation to be a real compliance success story. The company immediately worked on fixes to increase levels of security. And any fuss that was about died down super quickly. And we were all laughing away on happy hour calls and university lectures in some cases and business calls. What do you see as being the key elements of succeeding in times of compliance strain? Well, thank you so much, Mary, and and I really do appreciate the story of of your mentioning, you know, all of the different use cases, happy hours, and university lectures, and and so forth. If I may pick up on that thread and just step back for a minute, as you may know, Zoom was founded in 2011 by our CEO Eric Wan. Eric wanted to create a way to replace in-person business meetings with video conferencing. Uh, the origin story that I have heard is that he came up for the idea for Zoom when he was dating his girlfriend, now wife, and they were in a long distance relationship. And so he, um, I guess, wanted to have a better way to communicate, right, through video oh, so that they awesome. could be closer. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so we are an American company. You know, we're headquartered in San Jose. I'm very proud to be part of California and, and uh, like many other great tech companies. Um, but unlike many other technology companies, we really were focused on business um, customers historically. So interestingly, you know, when you have a business customer, um, you know, with, a, with maybe an IT professional, if not some of our customers, which were quite large, you know, larger banks and hospitals and even larger higher education institutions, you know, they mm -hmm. come with their own IT departments, Right. And so Zoom, prior to the pandemic, was, um, you know, accustomed to working with those kinds of customers that had that IT level of support. And many of the security settings were configured in such a way as to be default off. And that meant that those professionals could come in and make the determination of how they wanted to configure their security mm -hmm. settings, you know, for their, for their mm -hmm. own employees. Right. But when the pandemic hit, um, again, in the United States, fully recognizing that it had already been happening and it took many of us right by surprise, I think that's fair to say, um, we then were in the privileged position of being a tool that people started to use that maybe didn't have that IT professional at home or were not maybe part of a big, big company, an enterprise that had an IT department. So overnight, really, it felt like from our perspective, right, it felt like overnight we were now mm -hmm. supporting, you know, yoga classes and, mm -hmm. and, you know, grandmother's birthdays and mm -hmm. reunions. And even in New York, you know, a terrific story, um, Governor Cuomo allowed weddings to take place over Zoom, oh. you know, weddings became <laughs> awful over Zoom, which was so exciting mm -hmm. for us, you know, it's a lot of fun. And, and I would be mm -hmm. remiss, I'm sorry, Mary, to go down a uh, a bit of a tangent, but I would be remiss if I didn't also mention the schools. By the end mm. of by the end of the spring, we were supporting over a hundred thousand schools. You know, when when the last school year ended, and I can't mm -hmm. tell you the how how honored and how happy um, you know the Zoom myself and Zoom colleagues have been, and the company to be able to support uh, the K through twelve schools in addition to mm -hmm. higher ed. You know, uh, supporting the K through twelve in that way. 
Um, mm-hmm. But but in any event, so so this sudden um, change of new use cases, it really meant that we had to do more, we realized, to educate mm. those new users and those new consumers, again, who didn't have that IT department at home. So we came mm. out, we, we um, wrote a new privacy policy, which was not about changing anything about privacy on the back end, but making sure that we had the information was clear. We put lots more resources on our website. We had a K through 12, for example, um, privacy policy on its own. We set forth, you know, um, sites and, and documentation for teachers and for school administrators and so forth. So that really was a, a very interesting um, and, and something that we wanted to respond to to try to get that word out as, as quickly as possible during the spring. Um, but, it, but it's true that in, in a time of, of strain like this, back to your original question, you know, that, that was a journey that, that Zoom went, went through and everybody was going through you know, adjusting to these new times, right? And we still are, I think, in many cases. And so, again, the the fact that we can still talk to one another and still, whether, whether you know, you have a, a concern in a company and a particular investigation or a particular risk that you want to try to talk with somebody about and mitigate, well, thankfully, you know, we do have Zoom because it would be really hard to have those interviews and those conversations without some kind of tool, right, that allowed you to, to talk to one another. Absolutely. And um, for, for me, uh, though we'd been using Zoom for some time um, on the podcast, I think before it was super high profile, um, when I was uh, stuck home in New Zealand during the lockdown, I was meant to be meeting with school friends for a dinner back in Wellington, which is my home city. And um, one of the girls messaged to say, once New Zealand was in lockdown, you know, why not um, us all meet? And we, we ended up meeting over Zoom. So um, that was really lovely. And I'm, I'm sure there are so many unique ways in which people have used it. And you mentioned yoga classes, which is awesome. But I, I just can't even imagine the extent to which people have uh, done the pivot and used Zoom as their medium for doing so. So you guys have helped to um, help life continue on as normal, as close as we can. And I think that's such a big deal. And um, it, it relates a little bit to my next question, which is, what was it like for you coming into a company that was suddenly the next big thing and building out a compliance program in that environment while a company is experiencing such a high profile and increased usage? Well, thank you, Mary. And thank you also for the kind words before I answer the question. I, I do really appreciate that. And again, we're all very um, proud of what we've been able to accomplish, but also, again, privileged. We feel very privileged and humbled to be able to help out during you know, what what was and continues to be such a challenging, uh, tough time for everybody with COVID. Um, in terms of how to specifically build out a compliance program, I was actually, I'll confess, uh, I was a little worried about being able to do my job because I'm not, I am remote from, from San Jose. I'm not located right at the headquarters. Um, and I thought, wow, how can I do my job? And, and because as you may know, as, as I'm sure you do know, uh, <laughs> compliance, right, sometimes is viewed as a, an additional burden by people who mm-hmm. make, make, move, and sell. Right at PepsiCo, we right. always use the phrase make, move, sell. And mm-hmm. the legal department, uh, as, as uh, you know, doesn't always make money. We, we hopefully do save people money. But as compliance or legal professionals, you know, we we are um, 
sometimes viewed as more of a cost center than a resource. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so when you are thinking about building something new, which sometimes means uh, convincing people to bring questions to you, which sometimes mean that they have to check with you before that they can proceed with a particular contract or a particular new regime for something, um, that definitely can be perceived as slowing things down. So, but I, but luckily, you know, with Zoom, we the company is really, really dedicated, of course, to our own platform. And I've spent many, many hours through the spring, you know, with the 90-day focus on privacy and security. I spent so many hours in the trenches, you know, with my colleagues, talking with them, um, helping to solve business problems. And, and you know, to the extent that that, um, that, that has that, that that's interesting for people that it has worked. I mean, it, rather than being the internal affairs police kind of model for a compliance department, the one that I've always found more effective and I, 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 um, you know, would advocate for is that is that we do want to be a resource. And so, the, to the extent that you can figure out what the business problems are and solve those, rather than coming along and and adding a whole bunch of new rules and regulations and points of friction. That's what I would advocate would be a more, a more efficient and more successful, more effective way, right, to get to know your colleagues and help to solve those problems. Totally. I'm fully aligned with you there. And thinking about using you as a resource now, I'd love to hear your insider thoughts on how would you say Zoom could be beneficial to compliance departments and what special features could Zoom users take advantage of? Yes, of course. Thank you for asking. So I would say, first of all, you know, like any like any department, it's always great to get to know your colleagues before there is a, a crisis or an area of particular concern or risk that you would like to, you know, get after. So one way that you might use Zoom is to have trainings. And first of all, you could always do a meet and greet with colleagues, right? You could introduce yourself if you're a compliance professional or in a compliance department. You know, I would recommend scheduling a Zoom uh, to do that meet and greet, to get to know how they work, really get to know how your business operates. And and then you can start to learn what those pressure points are. Ask, Ask your business colleagues, you know, what are their competitors doing? What concerns them about their competitors? Of course, all that can be done over Zoom in a non-stressful time. And then, of course, if there does come an issue where, you know, you have to work together a bit under a time crunch or if, if there's an issue that comes up, first of all, they'll know who to call, hopefully, because you've met them, you've chatted. And, and you know, but, but it's always better to have that initial conversation where you're learning from them and you're and then, um, you know, they would get to know you. The second piece I might emphasize is that you can, again, going back to that, try to be thinking about what is a business problem that you might be able to solve. So perhaps you could deliver a training over Zoom. You know, that's something that you could save the company money. You wouldn't have to get on a plane. You wouldn't have to take time and, and money. And of course, nowadays, it's it's all pretty risky or at least mm. nerve-wracking to travel. Mm-hmm. As you know, Mary, I think you've done mm-hmm. some traveling, right? So, <laughs> a little yeah, bit. Yeah. So it, to the extent that companies want to save money and people have varying comfort levels with getting on a plane right now, you know, a mm-hmm. training is something that really does work beautifully over Zoom. You can, and I'm not here to sell, but, you know, you can check out our webinars where you can have a panel and you can have questions and you can, you can really play with the having a small meeting and have it be one-on-one, or you could have a larger, a larger situation um, such as a, a training. And that way you're hopefully offering your company and your colleagues 
um, a resource, you know, establishing yourself as a resource, again, before there comes any kind of a, a pressure point. Absolutely. And I would um, certainly advocate for the use of um, Zoom. The, there's a breakout function functionality um, that we used just last night. We had our launch party for the Great Woman in Compliance book, Sending the Elevator Back Down. Um, and thank you to, to all of our, our listeners who joined us last night. It was such a, a delight to participate with you and celebrate the contributors together. Um, but I thought it worked wonderfully. It was my first time in the experience where we broke up into networking groups. And I think that could very easily be a great way to run compliance focus groups or to, you know, obviously there are trainings that are more generic and then um, maybe you want to make things role-based. So your code of conduct, um, there's only so much that you can talk about at a high level and then breaking everyone up into their job functions uh, I can see that this would be an excellent way to achieve that and then everyone come back together and discuss some of the topics. Yes, and so yes, on. exactly. No, I love the breakout room. And I recently was practicing myself um, learning how to annotate. So if someone has a, a, a deck up and you can put stars on it, put different characters on mm -hmm. it, you can circle different oh, cool. things, you know, all of those things that make you feel as if you are really still in a room, still in a conference room, you know, physically working mm -hmm. on that whiteboard together. And and the, the ease mm -hmm. of it, you know, really does help. And it's all about that seamless communication. That that really I think um, is the is the one of the the real um, you know um, one of the real founding principles, if you will, of Zoom was to make video communications mm -hmm. very seamless and very easy. And uh, we hope that those certainly hope that those features help. Mm, absolutely. Well, we, I, I think we had, if I do say so myself, very successful events. So um, I would certainly champion that the great. use that of sounds great. <laughs> um, so, Lynn, uh, turning now to some of your board appointments, you've had some really interesting um, opportunities. Uh, I know that you spent time serving uh, as a board director for Women in Need, which is now known as WIN, um, and also you're currently on the advisory board for the Purple Campaign, which is an organization that focuses on uh, stemming workplace harassment, um, which is some, something that's certainly close to my heart and, and I'm sure for many of our listeners as well. Um, would you like to share with us a little bit about um, your, your work in, in those spaces? Of course. Thank you so much, Mary, for asking. The, the Women in Need, formerly Women in Need, now known as WIN, is one of the largest provider of services and shelter for homeless families in New York City. And I had the honor to serve as uh, PepsiCo's director um, on the board and uh, from 2017 until actually just this, this past month in October. And, um, you know, it's a tremendous organization. It's run by Christine Quinn as the CEO, and it has a really, really committed board and just an incredibly talented staff that run that, um, you know, network of homeless shelters. And again, for women and children in New York City, of course, like, like many places like California, where, where Zoom is located also, there, the homelessness is rising and with COVID and all of the additional pressures um, that come onto homeless families, of course, many, many of the homeless are actually working mothers uh, with children. And that um, you know, incredible expense that it that it represents to you know mm -hmm. to have your family 
uh, in New York City, it's so mm-hmm. much that actually many of the women are working. It's not that they are unable to work or unwilling uh, to work, but very, very often, you know, the, their job just doesn't uh, pay enough. So very, very honored to have been PepsiCo's director. Actually, even until October after leaving PepsiCo, I was, um, you know, able to stay on as their director and just a, a terrific, terrific challenge. And Chris Quinn has has done an amazing job during COVID to, to pr- try to, you know, to protect and, and house and provide services to all mm-hmm. of their family. Wonderful cause. And then the other, thank you for asking, um, is the Purple Campaign, which is run by Ali Call. It's, um, it's, uh, run out of Washington, D.C., but again, the mission of the organization is to end work to end workplace harassment. And interestingly, you may think that in times of COVID, you know, there's less harassment because, you know, various folks are not always uh, running into each other in the office, but it doesn't mean that the work should end. And I'm not even mm. sure, actually, that harassment, you know, can't be done, um, you know, mm-hmm. in a remote fashion either. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, there's, um, that's would be terrific if we got to a, a day or a point in time when there that wasn't an issue any longer. But, um, but, but, um, Ali does a wonderful job, I think, and it's a really, it's a really impressive, impressive organization. So I'm again happy to to be able to help out there on the advisory board. Well, thank you for your service to to two very deserving causes. It it sounds like very valuable work. And um, I'm so pleased for you that uh, you're, you're contributing in a way that must give you such a good sense of self-achievement and um, personal satisfaction. Well, it's great to, of course, to give back where you can, right? I, mm-hmm. I've been really lucky. I've worked really hard in life, but I've been mm-hmm. also very, very lucky. And, um, you know, my parents are first-generation American and just mm-hmm. really arrived here at a time when they were able to work hard and provide for us. And, and not everybody has, you know, is, is as lucky or as privileged. So again, it's, it's great to be able to give back a little bit. Absolutely. And that completely embodies the spirit of, of our book, Sending the Elevator Back Down. It is the exact attitude and um, commitment to looking after others, raising them up um, and, um, really just caring about the the society around us. So um, obviously one of the key reasons why we were interested in interviewing you as you are such a nice embodiment of the spirit of a great woman in compliance. Well, thank you. Thanks, Mary. Yeah, and actually caring is one of our our company values at Zoom. Oh, I love that. Yep, that is the way that the company has phrased it, that we care Mm -hmm. about our customers we mm-hmm. care about our communities, where we live and where we work and operate. And we care about ourselves, meaning we care about our team members and our colleagues. Right. Not, not literally, you know, each person about themselves, <laughs> although although self-care is important, right, during these really, mm-hmm. really stressful times. But but I would say that I focus more on, when I hear it, caring about ourselves, I really focus more about our our colleagues. And it, it really makes my day to try to help out a colleague and and uh, to have that that care Mm-hmm. Um, be just front and center a value of the company is is something that really attracted me to Zoom as well. Wow, yeah, th- um, I, I didn't know that until you just mentioned it then. And uh, when you have company values that uh, just are more than just the words on paper and you really feel like they resonate with you and you're like, yes, those are personal values for me that I, I really prioritize, um, that makes a workplace so enticing. So I must say, um, 
what a great job Zoom did selecting that particular value. I, I really think it's an excellent one. It, it's a great, it really is a great driving principle. And it, does, it doesn't mean that everybody or every employee is happy with the company at all times. You know, mm-hmm. there, there are still always things that can be improved and worked on and, and people may, a reasonable people can always disagree, but, mm-hmm. but it really is something that, that um, I believe at least that the company takes very seriously. And it's, it's a great, it's a great rallying cry. You know, it really mm-hmm. is. And I think it, it, um, it's nice when the then when the company values and your own values can align in that way, and that you can try to help. Um, you know, again, we we're trying to do our our small part to keep people connected in a way that's safe and and uh, and that works for them. Absolutely. And turning now to some of your other accomplishments, you contributed significantly to the PepsiCo compliance program, and I'd love to take some time for you to walk through some of the initiatives that you led there as you did so many interesting things. Uh, So first up, um, the third party sanctions and screening program. Will you share with us what you wanted to achieve, what pain points you wanted to address and how you went addressing the areas for improvement? Sure, of course. Well, as you know well, and I, I alluded to them before, but per the DOJ and SEC guidance, you know, continuous improvement is one of the planks or one of the elements of an effective compliance program. So I'll start out by saying that I, when I joined PepsiCo in 2016, this was my line for everybody, but I really believed it and, and uh, it was my challenge as well, my, my talking line, if you will, my, and, and my challenge was how to take a, a really, really excellent program and make it better. How do you take a good program and make it great? Mm-hmm. How do you take a great program and make it even better? So no matter where you are, of course, in your maturity journey, depending on what type of company, you know, where you work, the the challenge is to be able to meet that element of an effective compliance program is you have to take a look across the board at everything, right? And and of course, everybody knows that per the the spring 2019 guidance, risk assessments really are, Mm. uh, you know, we're we're, um, even more focused was put Mm -hmm. on that element of risk assessments. So -hmm. no matter where you are at your company... The first thing, of course, you have to do is do a risk assessment and and take a look across the company. PepsiCo had a really and has a really terrific compliance program. So my challenge, again, coming in in 2016 was to look across the board and do a risk assessment and think, where are the areas that I can dial up the maturity? Where are there places where I can uh, really start to focus on? Because, of course, you can't do everything uh, overnight. So where did it make sense to try to start to focus on and try to, um, again, dial up that maturity? And one of the areas that I um, believed was important to look at was the third-party sanctions and screening program and also our third-party due diligence program. So PepsiCo, of course, tremendous, tremendously mature compliance culture, really, really terrific. Everybody trying to do business the right way. Everybody... Mm. Mm-hmm. knew what the compliance and ethics department was. Everybody shared in the burden of investigations and helping to get to the bottom of things in a, in a really very, very mature way. But because it's such a big company and um, you know PepsiCo owns lots of different companies and lots of really, really terrific leading brands, what that means is that one of the things that was less centralized, if you will, was a third-party due diligence program there was lots of excellent work being done in pockets, little different pockets, you know, across 200 countries. Mm-hmm. The company operates in so many different places. And so right. across 200 companies and hundreds upon hundreds of companies as well in those countries, 
Um, the challenge was how do we get to a more centralized program where, where myself and my team as the chief compliance and ethics officer, how can we sitting in headquarters mm. understand the risk? And, mm. and so that involved, um, you know, um, testing and trying out and iterating new technologies mm-hmm. as well as writing up some new processes and some new, essentially a playbook. So mm. we got together with, and, and I don't want to, please, I don't want to pretend that it was, you know, just me alone. <laughs> I really had a, an amazing, amazing team at PepsiCo, many of whom are still there. They're just wonderful. And, and colleagues, of course, as I've said, who understood compliance there, very mature culture. But I would also say we had a terrific partner in one of the big four and mm-hmm. also a vendor. We had a really terrific vendor. So with both of those um, external parties as well, my team and I were able to write a new playbook, bring on new technology, and really um, you know, refresh the third-party due diligence program in a way that allowed it to be more visible and more centralized, which was really exciting. Awesome. And something that I'm particularly interested in is the compliance app that you launched. What was it for? And um, in terms of a fiscal investment, how prohibitive was it? Oh, that's a great question. So, uh, again, this was part of um, taking a very, very mature culture, a very, very established company, and thinking about new technologies and new ways to communicate that might resonate with whether it's younger employees or newer employees or even, you know, the the public at large. So the app was intended mostly for PepsiCo employees and to be another place where compliance and ethics resources were available. But one of the things that we did, which I really, really loved, was that we added, anonymized, of course, but we took uh, speak up cases that had occurred in prior years and we anonymized them Mm -hmm. and appropriately, you know, made sure that there was nothing confidential that we were sharing and so forth. But we, we wrote up summaries and posted some of those real-life stories um, on the app. And again, the idea being that, that people do learn from storytelling. People learn from right. narratives. Yep. And as you know, Mary, people love real-life examples, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we put up some, some good stories. We put up some, some, you know, a little bit more cautionary tales, uh, you know, things that had gone wrong, things that had gone well. And we put in those stories in the app so that we could uh, communicate in a new and a fresher, fresher way. In, in terms of the expense, I don't honestly recall uh, how much it was, um, but we we had help with that. You know, we we hired some help for that, and uh, I don't think it was terrible. I really don't. And and it was a it was a worthwhile investment in my view. Again, to be able to have that a new channel of communication, and frankly, to try to make those compliance and ethics, you know, real life examples accessible to people and, and uh, in an easy way. Mm. You've just mentioned that it was worthwhile. My, my next question for you was whether you believe the app made a measurable difference to the accessibility of key compliance information um, in terms of employees really using the tool after they downloaded the app. So it sounds like uh, the answer to that is yes. Is there anything further that you'd want no, to add No, I would it? say uh, yes. I do believe that, that uh, you know, of course, I don't have them now. But at the time, we looked at the statistics mm. and it was something that employees were, were you know, going to the site and, and checking out those, those real life examples. So we were really proud of that. Awesome. And I think that's something that everyone can look at doing. Those real life cases are available to you and 
even if your company, which I highly doubt, has no investigations to draw from, you can always use those of, of other companies. Exactly, exactly. That are well, um, you have an incredible backdrop of experience at the Department of Justice over a period of 12 years, which is pretty significant. And amongst other things you worked on were espionage cases, sex crimes and terrorism. Can you tell us more about that experience? What was it like? Sure, sure. And, um, you know, I'll just tell you a, a, a short anecdote, which is when Please. I was at the department, um, both in D.C. and EDVA, you know, tremendous offices, People who would come back for our holiday parties, you know, uh, people like myself now, uh, colleagues in AUSAs who had moved on, they would always come back to the holiday party and say, oh, you know, best job I ever had. And those of us who were still in the job would kind of chuckle and roll our eyes, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. your uncle coming over at a wedding and saying, oh, kids, what are you yeah. kids doing right now? And and at the time, you know, we would say, oh, thanks, ha, 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 and, and you know, kind of kind of laugh a little bit and, and as these, you know, prior AUSAs would come over. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, it's true, Mary. Now I'm one of those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now I'm one of those people. So um, it's a terrific job. And of course, it's an honor to work at the Department of Justice and, um, you know, really, really, you know, uh, setting aside politics, right, and things that are maybe happening now. Um, but really a tremendous uh, personal experience. I'm I'm proud to have served um, and tried to you know uh, do right and and serve um, as a representative of the U.S. and represent the U.S. in court. Um, and of course, in later years at EDVA, working in national security matters, counterterrorism and counterespionage, um, you know, cyber national security cases. Those are are you know some of the trickier international legal issues that you could find. And uh, Mm. really EDVA and DC both incredible offices, really, really dedicated uh, teams of prosecutors, um, the career prosecutors, you know, those of us who were in the trenches and um, just an extraordinary range of cases, extraordinary colleagues and, and experience there. Excellent. And then I'm going to take you further back in time to dig around uh, into your rich experience further. You also held a fascinating role in Switzerland, which included leading a review of awards for victims of Nazi persecution. And you also investigated claims to Swiss bank accounts from World War II. I have to say at this point, honestly, most of us would be so lucky to have even a tiny taste um, of the interesting responsibilities that you've had so far in your career how did working on an historical matter that is so deeply filled with emotion when confronted with the realities of the time affect you? Well, interestingly, I think, um, you know, the emotion is, is of course, a part of it. But I think what allows me um, to not, um, I really think it's action that drives me more than emotion and getting things done. And so in the instance of working on the claims resolution tribunal for the dormant Swiss bank accounts, this was uh, a court that was set up in Switzerland following the, some of the major Swiss banks were seeking to operate in New York. And it was actually, as I understand it, the New York State Banking Commission that was speaking with various large Swiss banks and looking potentially at their books and saying, wait a minute, before before the tribunal was established, of course, 
the the way the story goes, the way that I've heard it, is that the New York State Banking Commission looked at those books and said, wait a minute, you're sitting on a lot of money, Swiss banks, that may or may not be yours. It's not been claimed since World mm. War II. Mm-hmm. And so in order to operate in the United States, apparently in a way that they wanted to, the banks then set up this court, which was an arbitration tribunal, and a number of lawyers from all around the world, really, really talented um, legal team lawyers from all over the world were recruited to Zurich. We had an office in Zurich and one in Geneva, and then really well-known, world-renowned um, arbitrators, and it was run by a former George Washington professor of mine, Thomas Bergenthal, who also then went on to be in the International Court of Justice. But professor, and and then of course, Justice Bergenthal ran the tribunal and I was one of the staff attorneys and just had an amazing year there, essentially running arbitrations between the families and the banks in order to find victims and family members of victims from World War II and and where we could establish um, more than a preponderance of evidence, we could establish the families, the banks, we would then, you know, render render an arbitration order and the banks would pay back um, those families and those relatives from that money from World War II. So again, you know, the historical... um, the historical burden, if you will, um, you know, better late than never, I guess, for the mm-hmm. Swiss banks have taken it upon themselves to try to clear up that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's it's emotional, but I, mm-hmm. I would focus again on the fact that I felt very privileged and honored to be able to, to um, drive action and to be yeah. able to support that decision to to get that money back to the families. Yeah, and I guess from a, a positive, uh, that must have been somewhat fulfilling for you as well to have that satisfaction of of being a part of that that action. That's right. That's right. And it, and it, and uh, you know, it's it's um, emotion is important, but I think um, if I were going to choose, I think I would choose action every time. Hmm. Hmm. Fair call. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thinking back now to our our earlier discussion about caring as a value, my last question for you, and this is, I feel so apt, um, centres squarely on caring. So as all of our days um, continue melting into one big work from home day, aside from my lucky um, national counterparts in New Zealand, um, our listeners there are living life largely as usual. Hello to you all. Um, <laughs> what keeps you motivated and how have you been motivating and appreciating your team from afar during this time? Well, as I alluded to earlier, um, fortunately, because we are Zoom and we use our product, we use the Zoom platform and Zoom phone all the time. Uh, I can tell you it's something like 15 to 16 hours a day for me and for many of my colleagues still working long yep. days. Yeah. Um, I would say we're we're super fortunate to be able to have this and to be at this company that does put an emphasis on care. And as I said, it's caring for our customers, our communities, and ourselves. And I interpret that to mean, you know, yes, you should take care of, you know, one should take care of oneself. But even more importantly for me, one should try to take care of the team. And I really do feel we're very, very lucky at Zoom to have a terrific team, to have, um, you know, an amazingly collaborative not just the legal department, but across the business, um, it's been it's been 
really humbling. It's been really terrific to have that sense of collaboration and that sense of mission mm. in order to try to help again during during what's been a really, really rough time for a lot of people. I don't want to, um, you know, I don't like to talk about the success of Zoom because it it's come at a time when, when mm-hmm. others are struggling so much. So there, I, I do want to say that, that um, you know, we care, we think about that. That is a really strong company value. And that motivates me quite a bit to try to, um, again, it's a, it's a commercial company, you know, it's not, it's not a charity, but yet we do give away a lot of Zoom to K through 12. We really do. And we mm-hmm. have continued that. Mm-hmm. And we're all really, really proud of that. Um, so that's, that's that and, and the teamwork and being able to um, help support right now really is a driving force. Super. Well, I'm so glad that we ended on that note. It's a, it's a, a very strong personal value of mine. And I hold Zoom in even higher regard um, after our chat today. It was so interesting hearing about the origin story as well, that it um, it came from a, a dating story. So uh, <laughs> right. really, really interesting to chat with you, Lynn. And um, I'm sure our listeners will enjoy this session. You're such a consummate professional and uh, we're so grateful for your time. I know that you are working extremely long hours at the moment and to sneak in a little bit of time for us is so appreciated. Thank you so much. Oh, Mary, thank you. Thank you. I, I mean, everyone's working hard. Um, and, uh, but, but again, I, I appreciate uh, the invitation today. I very much appreciate the chance to talk about, uh, you know, some of the, some of the ways compliance can help drive results and help people do things, you know, do, help get business done and solve business problems uh, in a way that is caring and that it is that is action oriented and, and driving things forward. So thank you so much for the invite. I love it. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.